All right, we're looking at Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to skip to chapter 40 and look at verses 16 through 38. So let's give our attention to God's word. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then 40, 16 and following. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses." He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle, tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. We pray for us before we uh, look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all that you do for us, we look back on a semester of uh, your word in Exodus, 
And we are grateful that you would reveal yourself. And we pray that that would happen one more time. That tonight you would be here with us in spite of our sin. um, In spite of our um, indifference. In spite of our cold hearts. That you would open up our eyes so that we might see. And our ears that we might hear. Um, we, We know that we need you to do that. And so, Father, we ask it expectantly and hopefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As some of you you know, I was in a a fraternity in college. And and yes, I can do what what you call the frat snap. Um, And my experience with pledging my freshman year, uh, we'll just just say it was an interesting one. Um, Suffice it to say they required a lot of us. um, And it was not easy. I don't want to, you know, give away too many details, but in the midst of all that we had to do, uh, as you would, as we would be doing some really random, um, yeah, difficult activity, um, you would be wondering, and we would be wondering aloud to each other, like, what in the world are we doing? What's the purpose of this? What, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And the uh, the the upperclassmen would always say. Um, you can't see it now, but everything that we do has a purpose. Everything we do has a purpose, and you'll see it in the end. And they they would keep that sort of dangling in front of us. I know it doesn't make sense, but it's going to make sense in the end. Everything we do is for a purpose. And so we were really, in a sense, sort of desperate to see, like, what can make sense of all this? Now, why do I tell you that? Uh, I tell you that because, uh, you know, if you've been with us, you know, we've been studying through Exodus, which is this, this great story of God saving his people. This great salvation story of saving his people out of, uh, out of Egypt. And each, uh, our theme each week is that Exodus is really the pattern of salvation. Uh, that is to say that the way that we see God save his people in Exodus is, uh, is emblematic of, is really it's the same as he saves today. So as we look at these stories and dig into them, uh, we can learn a great deal about what it means to experience God and His salvation here and now for us. And so we've, uh, we've come to the end of our study, the end of Exodus, and tonight I think what we see, what I want you to see is the big purpose of it all. What's the point? What's the purpose of God bringing these people out of Israel? The purpose of all the things that we've talked about and seen and that they've done. What's it, what's it for? I think this passage shows us the, uh, the purpose of salvation. And look, let me say that tonight especially, we are, we're taking a very wide-angle lens look at, um, at the tabernacle, right? Um, I mean, we're covering essentially 15 chapters tonight. Um, so keep that in mind, right? There's a ton of things that we could talk about, and we just don't have time. Um, but what we do have time for, I want you to see two things. Two very, very broad and yet very simple things. I think, I think this passage helps us to see what God wants first. What is it that God wants? And secondly, how does God accomplish it? All right, so first, what is it that God wants? All right, as we do every week, let's just quickly run through the story. Where, where are we, right? Um, 
Israel had been enslaved in Egypt 400 years. And God shows up and he says, through Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. I'm going to bring you out, give you freedom. And uh, he goes to, goes to Pharaoh and there are the plagues and eventually sends him out. And they, they leave Egypt and then they get up against the Red Sea. The army starts to chase them, right? And then God parts the Red Sea. They go through. Uh, God parts the Red Sea back on the Egyptians. Enemies dead. And then God begins to lead them through the wilderness. And he provides everything that they need, right? And then we saw um, uh, the last couple of weeks that he gives, he gives them his law, right? And we said that, that was a good thing. And last week we looked at the, uh, the, um, the golden calf incident, right? And that was, what, chapter 32 or something like that? Well, so from chapters 25 to 40, the end of the book, uh, basically what God is, is telling Moses and telling his people, except for this, that sort of uh, uh, middle part about the calf, he's telling them about how to build this tabernacle, about how to, uh, how to worship him. And if you read through the whole thing, you see that it's filled with lots of detail. Lots of very particular details about how to build every single aspect of this tabernacle. All right, so we probably need to stop and say, all right, what is the tabernacle? We don't, you know, talk about tabernacles in everyday life, so what is it? Um, It was basically a big portable tent where where God said that he would dwell, that he would live in the midst of his people in this tent, and it would move wherever they went. They would pack it up and move it. And it would be put, uh, they would put it right in the middle, literally in the middle of, the, of their camp, wherever they camped. Um, it was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. Uh, if you think about the, uh, the, uh, like the container, the back part of an 18-wheeler, right? If you think about that, and you make it twice as wide and twice as tall. It's about the size of this thing. I don't know if that helps you, but kind of help me get a, get a picture of it. So you've got this, uh, this tent. It had a big fence around it with a courtyard in between it. Uh, but inside the tabernacle was basically two rooms. And the, the innermost room was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant was where, God, uh, where God's presence would manifest, where he would show up and meet with his people, where he would meet with the high priest once a year. All right, so that is very broadly what, what it is. So what's the point? Well, if you, if you do read through all of it and you, and you read through it carefully, um, and look, what I'm about to tell you, a lot of the, the examples I'm going to give you don't come from the passages that we read. So please keep that in mind. But, um, but if you read through it all, you start to see that that a lot of the aspects of the tabernacle start to sound familiar to you, maybe. Um, things like the entrance to the tabernacle is, is supposed to always face east. Um, there were precious stones uh, involved, particularly gold and onyx. Um, there were angels, there were cherubim that were fashioned into the cloth, the screens, the curtains, right? Um, seven times through 20, uh, chapters 25 and 31, you see the phrase, The Lord said to Moses... God speaks. And then the seventh time, he talks about a a Sabbath rest. Uh, You also see the ark of God, right? The very presence of God himself in the midst of his people. And if you look at all those things, the last time, the only time that you've seen them together was in the Garden of Eden. 
was at creation. Right? People have, have started to notice that all of these, uh, all of these aspects uh, have seem to come together again. And the last time we saw them, uh, we saw them all together at creation. In the very beginning. And it seems to be, the point seems to be that God's big purpose in salvation is to make things, to fix things and put them back like the way they used to be. When God dwelled, lived right in the midst of His people. When He had unbroken fellowship with His people. That seems to be what He's doing. God is wanting to, His whole purpose is to put everything back so that He can be with His people. That's it. That's the purpose of salvation. He wants to be with you. It's what we see in the very end of the Bible, right? Revelation 21. That was uh, last semester. Um, It's where everything is heading, right? We see the new heavens and the new earth. The dwelling place of God is with man, right? Heaven and earth come together. The purpose of salvation is that God wants to be with you. Look, in other words, God doesn't pull off salvation because He wants to have some people to boss around. Um, He doesn't want to just have some people uh, so He can make up some random orders and have people follow His orders. Right, if you go back to my fraternity story, I'm sorry to say for myself that, and you probably saw this coming, there wasn't, there wasn't a great purpose. Unless that, really what, what we saw, the purpose, there was a great purpose, I should say, and the purpose was so that the upperclassmen could have some people to push around and, and have some fun and laugh. That was the big purpose. And I think if we're honest... Right? Sometimes we can kind of default to th- potentially thinking about God like that. That really what he's doing, he's doing his whole God thing. And his whole idea is just to, just to have somebody to say like, hey, here are the rules and, and, and I want you to keep them. And then smack people when they get out of line. And I want you to see that that's not, that's not true. He doesn't save people uh, because he wants to have, he needs some sort of PR department to stroke his ego. And so he's going to make some people so that they can go out and and make him famous for fame's sake. Um, He doesn't save people because he's bored and he just, he wants something to fill up eternity. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need anything. And what I want you to see is that very simply, he saves people Because he loves people and he wants to be with them. That's it. He wants to be with you. Amy and I are heading out of town uh, right after this tonight because I'm doing a wedding uh, in Florida this weekend. And, you know, you can imagine, right, if you ask this couple that's on the, on the, uh, what, two nights away from their wedding, if you ask them, why do they want to get married? Right, they... I'm pretty sure they're not going to say like, well, we're, you know, we're going to appreciate the tax break. Um, That'll be helpful to us. Or, you know, we just really wanted somebody to sort of split bills with um, and, and, you know, share bills or, um, you know, something like that. Right. Um, Why do they want to get married? They want to get married because they want to be with each other. They want to spend the rest of their lives together. They're going to take vows 
right? They're going to take vows before God to say, we, we are willing to endure lots of potentially awful stuff. Why would somebody do that? Because they want to be with each other. That's it. That's the picture. That's what God's showing us. He wants to be with you. And now look, that's really good news for a lot of reasons, and we could go tons of different directions, but one application I want to make, I think one thing it helps us, uh, helps us is it helps us to understand ourselves, if you think about it, right? God is driving everything to, to put it like it, was, like it was intended to be, right? God with his people, that's how you and I were built, that's what we're designed for. And so I think it helps us to understand our own desires, uh, the longings that we have in life. It helps us to understand what's really uh, up under all of them. Because I would suggest to you that, that what, what this, this is showing us, what the Bible is showing us, is that, that because we were built to be with God, that that desire is our fundamental desire in life. That's what's up under every other longing that you have. You're longing for popularity, for acceptance, um, for control in life, um, and manifest in any number of ways, right? Through uh, your longing for friendship, for sex, for good grades, money, fill in the blank. That, what's up, that's, that what is up under all of that is a desire to be with God. Right, you might have heard the quote. It's usually uh, evidently attributed to G.K. Chesterton, and wrongly so, apparently, it's from a guy named Bruce Marshall. So says the internet. Uh, that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. You see what he's saying? The, the, the guy that shows up at the, uh, at the brothel, you know, looking for a prostitute, that whether he knows it or not, what he's really looking for is God. He would, never, he would maybe never even admit it or even recognize it. But he's not looking to join himself with a you know, prostitute. He's really looking for, to join himself with God. And yeah, that's what we look for in, our, in all those different ways. And it just might be that we can't find the satisfaction that we want because we're looking in the wrong place. And we've talked about this before, but I think we often can feel it most keenly when we do get what we're longing for, right? When you do get the boyfriend or girlfriend that you've been longing for, uh, the grade that you wanted, the car, the relationship, get into the sorority, get, get whatever it is that you've been longing for, and then you still feel the, the longing, right? It, it, it satisfies a little, but it's not finished. Right, that uh, thought of C.S. Lewis's quote that goes something like, uh, "If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world." And look, what I, what I want you to see is that is that God wants to satisfy that desire in you. He wants to be with you. All right, so we see what God, what it is that God wants purpose of salvation. So what's, how does he accomplish his purpose? Secondly, how does he accomplish, how does God accomplish his purpose? 
And we're going to see this uh, through the furniture. We're going to look at this through the lens of the furniture in the tabernacle. And like I said, there's tons that we could talk about. So we're going to pick one, um, the one that I want to pick. We're going, we're going to focus on the, uh, the altar, the bronze altar, for just a few minutes. You know, if you think about it, you can actually learn a lot, or at least you can learn something about someone from their furniture. Right? If you show up in someone's house, um, you, can, uh, you can tell a lot about who they are, about what they value from what they have and how it's arranged. Right? If you go into somebody's house and let's say they have, there's basically one chair, there's just one place to sit, and that's about it, you can probably gather that they don't really value sitting around and, and, and talking with people, at, at least at their house. Um, versus uh, the, the living room that you go in, and it's a bunch of comfy chairs and sofas and things like that, and they're all, uh, they're all facing one another. If the focal point of the room is sort of the other spaces to sit, you could probably gather that's what these people value. Uh, if the focal point was the television, right, you could make some more uh, inferences to see that that's a big priority. So what does this altar tell us? Well, first, I guess we should say a little bit about what it is. What is this altar, the bronze altar? It was basically a, a big box that was about seven and a half feet long, or it was actually exactly seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. And this altar was out in the courtyard, so it wasn't in the big tent. It was in between the entrance, right, the fence that went around it. It was between the entrance of the, uh, of the courtyard and the entrance of the tabernacle. So in other words, it was literally the first thing that you would see as you walked into the courtyard to where the tabernacle is. You get the idea. Um, So think about that. That means that if you walked into where God dwells with his people, if you, you know, in quotes, walk into God's house, the first thing that you would see, like picture this, this, you know, pretty good-sized box, and let's say there's a sacrifice on it, which is why it's there. This thing's about four and a half feet tall, and you put a bull on top of this thing. When you step in God's front door, so to speak, at eye level, what you see is this bloodied mess. You see a sacrifice. Right? You can't You can't miss this. So what does it mean? A couple of things. The first thing I think it shows us is it it shows us the problem. We'll put that in quotes. But right, what it does is it shows us that God is holy. If you're an Israelite, right, in this in this day, you know that God is God is other. Right, that's the the root of the Hebrew word holy. It, It just means other, different. God is. God is perfect like nothing else. He is very different from you. He is uh, all glorious, pure, perfect. And, and only something that's perfect can be near him. And it's so serious that, that death is required. So we could say it like this. You're either with him, which right, God wants you to be with You're either with him and perfect. Or you are with him and dead. 
Those are the options. And so it stops you at the front door and you are, you are just forced to see that, that God is not a God to be trifled with. That God is, is very other. That you can't come to God on your terms. That He dictates the terms. But it also shows us something else at the same time. right? It shows us the solution, so to speak. It shows us that God has made a way for you to come to Him. It on the one hand screams, you should not be here. And, it, and at the same time says, I desperately want you here. And I, I want you here so much that I have made a way for you to be here. Right? I, have, I will accept a sacrifice. I've made a way for the, the guilty and the dirty and the imperfect and the sinful to be forgiven. So everything about God's furniture says, look, it's a huge deal for you to be here. And I really want you to be here. And he, he makes a way by accepting a sacrifice. All right, so as we wind it up, how, how do we tie all this together? That's what I want to do. Just a few minutes. How do we tie, tie this together? What, what does this mean for us? And look, remember, right, all semester... This is the pattern of salvation. Right? That's what we've been driving uh, every week. And so here it is, right? Both of these ideas, that God wants to be with us, and that He has made a way for us to be with Him, come crashing together in the New Testament. Both of those things come together in the New Testament. John, John 1, John 1.14 uh, is talking about Jesus, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now look, here's what you need to know, and just you know, prove to you that I went to seminary and can read a book. That Greek word that we translate dwelt is the same Greek word uh, for tabernacle. So you could very rightly translate this, that the Word became flesh, that Jesus came and He tabernacled among us. Right? You get, the, you, you get what that's telling us, right? That, that Jesus is God in the flesh. That He wants to live, that He wants to be with His people. That He doesn't just ultimately come and, and manifest in a, in a tent and then later in a, in a temple. But He comes... He comes as a person, as a real person, and He walks around with us. That He is the true tabernacle and lives right in the middle of His people. But when God comes and lives right right in the middle of His people, what does He do? Right? Jesus comes and He actually becomes the sacrifice on the altar. Right? You see that, don't you? That, That... That God living with His people in the person and work of Jesus is the way in which you and I can be with Him. Because He becomes the sacrifice. Uh, in the next chapter, John 2, Jesus tells the Pharisees that if you tear down this temple, right, which is just a, a permanent tabernacle, so to speak, He says, I will rebuild it in three days. And the text very clearly says He was talking about the temple of His body. So in other words, He wants to be with you so much 
that he shows up himself. And he goes to unimaginable lengths. He comes and he bears with all kinds of suffering, all kinds of humiliation, and ultimately takes the wrath of God on himself because he wants to be with you. And look, that's what worship is, by the way. Right? I, I was going to say that the purpose of salvation is worship, but I was afraid that that might almost sound sort of cold or overbearing. But God, God simply wants to be with you. He wants you, he wants you to know how much He loves you and, and therefore how great He is and to celebrate that greatness. And that's what, that's what, look, that's what everybody wants in a, in a husband or wife, Right? You want somebody that looks at you and sees all the good and, and even all the bad, and they look at you and they still say, I think you're amazing. And I just want to be with you. I would, you know, walk across the desert. I would swim across the ocean. There's a song, I'm sure, you know, in there somewhere. I would do anything to be with you because I love you. All right, one last thing I want you to see because it goes even deeper, right? Um, Jesus doesn't stay on earth. Right? Raises from the dead, but then he goes up to up to heaven, and after he goes to heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit. And do you remember Acts chapter two, how the Holy Spirit shows up when it does? It shows up as tongues of fire. Right? Right? Reminiscent, right? In in a sense, just pointing directly back to how God manifests himself in the Old Testament, right? Pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. Shows up as, as tongues of fire where? Over the heads of every person in that room. Uh, In other words, illustrating, demonstrating that God doesn't just want to to live near you, uh, be with you. That he comes and he takes up residence inside of you. He wants to be very near you. And look, if if you don't know exactly what that means, if that sounds kind of weird to you, that's that's because it is. I, I... I don't really completely know what that means, but it's beautiful. He wants to be near you. He wants to be so near you that he's always with you. And look, that, near, that kind of nearness will change you. Right? If God moves into your heart, so to speak, he, he's going to rearrange your furniture. It'll change you. I want to end with a, with a, a quick story. Uh, I heard a story about a boy named Daniel... Uh, who spent his first seven years of life in an orphanage in uh, Romania. And, gosh, let's just say it wasn't pretty. Okay? Uh, For the first seven years of his life, he slept uh, sitting up because he shared uh, his crib with someone else. Uh, So you couldn't lay down. He shared that crib um, out of which he only... uh, he only got out of that crib, evidently, to, uh, to eat and go to the bathroom. That was pretty much it. He didn't, he didn't know the names of any adults. There's no, there's no end to that sentence. That's it. Any adults. Because the people that took care of him just basically is like, just keep him alive. He was never hugged, never kissed. Never loved on. He had no concept of what parents were. But when he was seven, uh, Rick and Heidi Solomon showed up and they decided they wanted him. They want Daniel. 
They wanted to be with Daniel, and they wanted Daniel to be with him, with them. So they adopt him. And it, right at first, it seemed okay, but it became pretty clear uh, that, that he had what experts uh, evidently call um, orphan attachment disorder, which basically means that you're incapable of forming relationships with people. How's that for a, a diagnosis? Um, he had no empathy. He had no conscience. Um, he had terrible you know, fits of anger. Um, violent temper. Uh, they said that he put over a thousand holes in the walls of their house. The uh, the professionals told uh, told their told the parents that he would never get better. That they should they should institutionalize him and he should be heavily medicated because uh, he's not going to get better. But they refused. And so the interviewer asked them. He asked them, "How do you love somebody that's so hostile? And, and did you ever think about?" you know, sending him away. And, and the mom said, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? He, how do I love him? He's my son. He's my son. How could I not love him? And, and she goes on to say, like, I, of course I never thought about sending him somewhere else because he, he's mine, right? You get, you get, the, you get the picture. She, I, I want to be with him. And so she realized, uh, she says that she realized that because she wanted to be with him and she wanted him to be better, uh, she got the idea that the only way he's going to get better is if basically she attaches herself to him. So get this, for month after month after month, she was never more than three feet from him. Attached to him almost literally. When he did something wrong, she was right there. And her punishments were um, hugs and kisses. She kept touching him, touching, 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 hugging, touching, loving. And the story culminated in him. they profile, you know, profile this, this kid, and they show that he, he wins this like uh, the best student award, and he he says something, he does something that, that the expert said he would never be able to do. He tells his parents that he loves them. Right? Do you, do you get the Do you get the picture? It was that. It was the nearness that healed him. It was the nearness, his mom being with him, that he needed more than anything else. And it's what healed him. It's what made him better. And look, that's a great, that's an amazing picture, but it's just a taste. It's just a taste of God's purpose of salvation, that he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you and his nearness will heal you. And look, that's what you're longing for. It's what I'm longing for. And the good news is that Jesus has accomplished it. It's already accomplished. And and it's it's yours and mine to take for free if you want it. It's a free invitation. And it's one that, that he offers to you right now. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, 
quite frankly, it's hard for us to believe that you want to be with us um, if, if we're honest. Because we are, not, um, we are not lovely. We are not easy to be with. And yet you go to almost unbelievable lengths because, because you just want to be with us. Jesus, I pray that, that that truth would reign supreme in every heart in this room. I pray that it, it does so right now. And if it's not, would you please make it so? I thank you for this semester and this year, and we pray it in your name. Amen.